Where in the scale of nations are the Chinese to be placed? Are they to be classified with the civilizations of the West? Or do they belong to the semi-barbarism of the East? Great difficulty will, I think, be found in assigning them either to one or the other. They are, like their policy, insulated and exclusive. Inferior to Turks, Persians, or Indians in military knowledge, they infinitely surpass those nations in the art of peace. And there is a species of vicious regularity in their government, morals, and science, which, while it gives them a claim to positive civilization, still leaves them far behind those nations, whose title is not to be disputed. Henry Ellis, British Diplomat, 1817. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, or one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 18, Let China Sleep. In 1816, Napoleon Bonaparte, deposed from power and imprisoned on the distant and inhospitable South Atlantic island called St. Helena, had a lot of time on his hands. He was a prisoner of the British, whose commander, Lord Wellington, had defeated him at Waterloo the previous year. But the Brits were pretty charitable, allowing Napoleon a comfortable house, as comfortable as you could be on that island, and the latest books. That year, 1816, Napoleon is said to have read a book written by Lord George McCartney, a British diplomat who had been the first envoy from Great Britain to the court of the Emperor of China 23 years previously, in 1793. After he read McCartney's memoirs, Napoleon, whose every utterance on St. Helena was scribbled down by observers, is said to have issued his famous quote, Let China sleep, for when China awakens, the whole world will tremble. There's evidently some dispute as to whether Napoleon really said this, and in what words, but the quote certainly became famous. Obviously today, in the 21st century, we know that these words were prophetic. China is one of the great powers of the world, economically, militarily, and politically. The very fate of our planet, imperiled by man-made global warming, is bound up in political and economic decisions made in China, as China, along with the United States, is one of the world's two largest sources of carbon emissions. But China, as ancient and influential as their civilization has been for thousands of years, didn't get to be a world power overnight. What most Westerners tend to know about Chinese history is either very ancient, like the First Great Wall built by Emperor Qin Shi Huangdi in 221 BCE, or fairly recent, like the revolution of Mao Zedong in the 20th century, 
or the famous visit by Richard Nixon in 1972, one of the most influential sleepovers in world history. What was China like between those two poles? Specifically for our purposes, what was China like in the second decade of the 19th century? It was a pretty mysterious and fascinating place, and an extremely complicated one, at least to the eyes of the few Westerners who saw it. Most of the history we've done here on Second Decade has been Western history, Europe or North America. We've occasionally taken some interesting forays to the non-Western world, like Hawaii in Episode 4, the East Indies in Episode 7, and we do eventually have to get to Latin America. Simone Bolivar and his revolutions are a huge subject. But China is, if you'll allow me to take Napoleon literally, the sleeping giant in the room. It's impossible to paint a picture of what the world was like in the 18-teens and leave China out of it. The population of the world was about 1 billion people in 1810, and of that number, 300 million, roughly a third, were subjects of the Chinese emperor. Just think about that for a moment. A third of the human beings on Earth were ruled from the Forbidden City in Beijing by an infinitesimally tiny elite, a small minority among the peoples of East Asia, a people we call the Qing, or Manchus, as they were more commonly known then. If you've been listening to this podcast a while, I bet you can name at least a couple of world leaders who were in power in their respective countries in 1810. We've talked a lot about some of them. Napoleon in France, James Madison in the United States, and, though he was nuts for most of the second decade, King George III was still King of England right up until the very end of it. He died in 1820. But who among you, those of you hearing my voice right now, can name who the Emperor of China was in 1810? If you can, kudos to you. I had to look it up. I didn't know until I started doing research for this episode. His name was Isengiro Yongyan, but he's known in the official roll call of dynastic Chinese rulers as the Jiajing Emperor. As Chinese emperors go, the Jiajing Emperor is fairly obscure. He's not tops on the list of the most influential or memorable Chinese rulers, or even if you just consider the Qing Dynasty. He's sort of, to the Qing Dynasty, what Millard Fillmore or Benjamin Harrison was to the United States. Got on the scoreboard, in charge for a while, but nothing really memorable about him. But the currents and cross-currents that were roiling in China during the reign of the Jiajing Emperor were very significant, and linked closely to events and processes that would shape China's history over the rest of the 19th century. For that reason alone, China in the second decade is worth our study. In defiance of Napoleon's maxim, I'm not going to let China sleep. Join me now as we travel to the exotic Middle Kingdom at the beginning of the 19th century. It's impossible to tell the story of the Jiajing Emperor, Isengiro Yongyan, without telling the story of his father. And to understand him, we have to understand a lot of the broader characteristics of China toward the end of the Qing Dynasty, and how it got that way. The story of the Qing, or Manchu Dynasty, goes all the way back to the end of the 16th century, with deeper roots going back farther than that. The Manchus were an ethnic minority in Central Asia and the north of China. The region called Manchuria is named after them. They had a distinct cultural identity from the majority of people who lived in China proper, 
an ethnic group called the Han Chinese. At the end of the 16th century, the leader of the powerful Aizenjioro clan of Manchus, a man named Norhachi, organized a bunch of warriors and began waging war against the Ming government of China proper. The feud started over some family vendettas. Eventually, the Aizenjioro clan and the military organization Norhachi started came to be a major threat to the Chinese government. Norhachi did not live to see his people conquer the Ming, but they eventually did. A very spectacular series of events in Beijing in 1644, which we don't have time to go into, resulted in the fall of the Ming dynasty, whose last emperor hung himself in the palace. The Manchus quickly consolidated control over China, but many Chinese, especially those of Han descent, viewed the Manchus as alien rulers. The Manchus did do a lot of things differently. For one thing, they instituted a revolution in hair fashion. Seriously. Previously, Chinese men would wear their hair in a sort of topknot style, a man bun as we might call it today. This had to do with Confucian values. The Qing, as a symbol of loyalty to their government, decreed instead that you had to shave the front of your hair, grow the back long, and braid it. The braid was known as a queue. In old photographs of China or Chinese people, or in movies set in China before the revolution, you'll often see this hairstyle. This was unique to the Qing dynasty. The Manchus inherited a very ancient and efficient system of government and the way Chinese society was ordered. The Chinese emperor was called the Son of Heaven and the Lord of Ten Thousand Years. He was believed to be semi-divine, sort of a halfway step between humankind and gods. The legitimacy of the Chinese state came from a concept called the Mandate of Heaven, where the gods were said to favor a particular family to rule, if they governed China and its people wisely and prudently. The key concept was stability. Unlike Europe, especially after the Renaissance, the idea of civilization advancing, technologically and economically, raising standards of living, even culturally, by developing new forms of intellectual thought, literature, art, etc., Chinese society didn't value that. They valued staying the same. China had developed plenty of technology in its day, gunpowder being one, but by the Qing times, innovation just wasn't a priority. Even art, literature, and music generally looked backwards. Chinese artists trained in the age-old styles of the ancients. A poet in Qing China was gifted because he, or occasionally she, emulated the old literary traditions better than others did. This is hard to understand for Westerners. Most of us, who come from the societies that were always trying to develop new things, new markets, increase productivity, develop new ideas and artistic movements. The Chinese worldview saw everything, including politics and history, as a cycle. Dynasties had a cycle. A new dynasty would usually take over in a period of political instability and warfare. They'd come in, stabilize the country, institute reforms, and then have a good long run, decades or perhaps even centuries, when things went pretty well. There'd be peace and general prosperity the new dynasty would have the mandate of heaven. But inevitably, as it tended to do, power would ultimately corrupt the dynasty. As the years wore on, rulers would become greedy, lazy, or slothful. There would be corruption. Rebellions and wars would begin in the countryside. Ultimately, China would descend into a new period of chaos and instability. The dynasty would lose the mandate of heaven, and then somebody else would come in to claim it, 
and the whole cycle would start all over again. This is how Chinese history works. If you view history this way, it stands to reason that every dynasty has a peak, a moment within that running smoothly period where things were as stable and as tranquil as they'd ever get. In the case of the Qing, this peak undoubtedly came during the reign of Aizenjiro Hongli, known much better as the Qianlong Emperor. Hongli dominated Chinese society and Chinese history throughout most of the 18th century. He came to the throne in 1735, at the age of 24. He reigned for an incredible 60 years, finally abdicating in 1796. But even then he was still on the scene as the power behind the throne, manipulating his successor, the Jiajing Emperor, who was his son. Hongli, the Qianlong Emperor, was something of a study in contrasts. He was definitely a refined and cultured man. During his long reign, he promoted the arts and culture, in that proud ancient tradition, of course, and was a champion of traditional Confucian ideals. This was important. As outsiders, the Manchu were originally thought to be hostile to Confucianism, but Hongli saw it as the key to legitimacy and tranquility in ruling the Chinese people. Hongli amassed a staggering collection of art and antiquities. This made the Forbidden City, the fairy tale complex of medieval palaces and chambers that had been at the center of the Chinese state since the 15th century, this made the Forbidden City one of the great private storehouses of art objects in the world. The Qianlong Emperor also built various other palaces, even a few utilizing European craftsmen. There was just a little bit of give in the Chinese system of valorizing stability and tradition. But, on the other hand, the Qianlong Emperor was a ruthless and genocidal dictator. In the middle of the 18th century, he directed a series of wars in Central Asia, which ultimately added the western desert region, called the Xinjiang, into the Chinese Empire. To do this, Hongli had to annihilate, and I mean that literally, annihilate, an indigenous people called the Zungars. The Chinese conquest of the Zungars is one of the most chilling and cold-blooded episodes of mass killing in history, every bit comparable to the massacres by communist Russia and fascist Germany during the 20th century, but considerably more low-tech. Suffice it to say, the Qianlong Emperor made his mark, in many cases, in blood. China's relationship to the West was always complicated. Going back as far as Roman times, European countries had traded with China, usually seeking luxury goods, spices, porcelain, or silk, that you couldn't get in Europe. The Silk Road across Central Asia was the artery of this trade. But the Chinese were also wary of foreign influence, especially cultural influences. As European trade, especially through sea routes, began to spread throughout the world during the Age of Discovery, the Chinese grew increasingly vigilant in trying to protect their own culture from what they saw as the degrading influence of foreign ideas, including religion, Christianity, although Portuguese Jesuits, who'd been mucking around in the Far East since the 16th century, enjoyed a special dispensation. Even before the Qianlong Emperor got to the throne, Chinese rulers were seeking to centralize and control trade with the West. By now, most Western trade was focusing on the port city of Guangzhou, which was known in the West as Canton. A system of special Chinese trading companies were granted the exclusive right to do business with foreign merchants. In 1757, midway through his reign, the Qianlong Emperor formalized this system, which came to be known as the Canton system, 
and outlawed any trade outside its boundaries. Guangzhou, Canton, became the sole point of contact, at least officially and commercially, between China and the West. Canton and its trade has appeared in this podcast before. After the American Revolution, the new United States got into the China trade in a big way. A large portion of its merchant fleet was perpetually bound for Canton. This was why Hawaii, which we covered in episode 4, was such a big deal. Charles Bernard, the castaway whose story I told in episode 5, was also heavily involved in the China trade through Canton. The British, for a number of reasons I'll get into in a moment, wanted to try to break out of this Canton system. As a result, hoping to gain better concessions from the Chinese government, the British sent a mission to Beijing in 1793, toward the very end of the reign of the Qianlong Emperor. This was the mission that Napoleon read about just before he made his famous remark. The mission was headed by trusted diplomat Lord George McCartney. No relation to the Beatle Paul McCartney, so far as I know. McCartney, born in Ireland, had already been the governor of two small colonial possessions in the British Empire, the Caribbean island of Grenada, which Ronald Reagan would later make so famous, and the Indian province of Madras. He was offered the post of governor of all of India, but he declined. McCartney's main goal was to establish a direct diplomatic embassy of Great Britain with the Chinese government. It was felt this was the opening step toward developing a liberalized trade policy. You see, the British in the 18th century were growing increasingly hungry for one particular product from China. By hungry, I mean that literally, especially every afternoon at 4 o'clock. Britain was addicted to tea. Britain's tea addiction went hand-in-hand with its sugar addiction, because you can't have good tea without sugar, right? The sugar industry, based in the British West Indies, was the reason why the Brits continued to rely on slavery. We visited that subject in episode 2. But, although they were growing a lot of tea in India, they needed more from China. The problem? The Brits, or really all the Western countries, didn't really have anything the Chinese wanted. You're not going to sell a lot of Yorkshire pudding in Beijing. In the 1780s, British merchants began coming up with a homegrown solution to this problem, which would eventually have profound implications. A certain plant tended to grow on mountain slopes in India, a place the British controlled. The plant was the poppy. The British East India Company saw in this dastardly little flower the answer to their trade imbalance with China. Opium comes from poppies, and opium, the 19th century equivalent of today's heroin, is, if you're a drug dealer, a pretty lucrative product, because you might say that the customers you sell it to tend to want to come back for more. Indeed, British commercial designs to get China addicted to opium had their seeds way back in the 1780s. An unspoken part of McCartney's mission was to open the Chinese market for British opium. In other words, he was a drug pusher. For his part, McCartney wasn't really that keen on becoming an 18th century Pablo Escobar. Why not sell them rice, he suggested, conveniently ignoring the fact that China was already the world's largest producer of rice. Anyway, this drug deal was the best idea the East India Company could come up with. After a couple of failed attempts at a diplomatic mission to Beijing, the British government tapped McCartney for the job. He agreed, on the condition that they make him an earl when he got back. In 1792, the McCartney mission set out for China. What he and his fellow white-wigged colleagues were quickly to learn is that the Qianlong Emperor and his people were sticklers for form and ceremony. While the Chinese were gracious hosts on McCartney's 1793 tour of the Middle Kingdom, 
putting them up in lavish country estates on their journey from Tanjin to Beijing, they weren't very eager to get down to brass tacks. Indeed, the major issue that McCartney and his people spent negotiating in China was not trade restrictions or cultural exchanges, but the proper way of showing obedience and respect to the Qianlong Emperor. Everyone was supposed to kowtow to the Emperor in his presence. Nine times, in fact. McCartney, who was eventually scheduled to meet with the Emperor, refused to do this. He was, after all, a subject of the great, if often crazy, King George III, and he wouldn't show a foreign sovereign any more deference than he would his own king. In England, when you saw the king, you were supposed to go down on one knee and kiss his hand. McCartney offered to do this to the emperor in place of the nine kowtows, which involved getting down on both knees and touching your forehead to the ground. We can't have that. The Qianlong emperor, who in any event would not stand the idea of a foreigner touching him, grew exasperated and almost called off the meeting entirely. The envoys, the Chinese Grand Council said, are totally ignorant of the proper ceremonies. These are ignorant barbarians, and it is not worth treating them with too much courtesy. Ultimately, a compromise was struck. McCartney, when he met the emperor, would get down on one knee, not both, and we'd just forget the hand-kissing stuff. On September 14, 1793, the Chinese emperor met a European diplomat for the first time. All was smiles and good cheer, of course. Hong Li even treated the Brits to a sumptuous banquet. McCartney wrote, The emperor's manner is dignified, but affable and condescending. The British did not get what they wanted out of the mission. They didn't quite appreciate that the Chinese regarded the mission as one of tribute, rather than negotiation. It's not surprising they saw it that way. From the Chinese perspective, the British still didn't have anything they wanted. In a letter to King George, Hong Li stated, quote, Our celestial empire possesses all things in prolific abundance and lacks no product within its borders. There is therefore no need to import the manufactures of outside barbarians in exchange for our own produce. End quote. McCartney and company sailed back to England. They did make him an earl. He died in 1806. Hong Li, the Qianlong Emperor, abdicated in 1796. He did this as a gesture of respect to his grandfather, who had reigned 61 years. Hong Li didn't want to reign longer than he had. The throne passed to his son, his 15th son, Aizenjiro Yongyan, the Jiajing Emperor. The Qianlong Emperor himself died in 1799. Poor Yongyan could never quite get out from under his illustrious father's shadow. And he couldn't have known, even at the start of the second decade, that the peak of the Qing dynasty had passed, and that he was the first Manchu emperor to preside over what was to become the beginning of the end of the dynasty. I wish there was a biography of Yang Yan, but I couldn't find one. Perhaps one hasn't been written, or at least not one that's translated into English. I admit my Chinese is a little rusty. I think the story of his life would be more interesting than most historians suppose. The man who ruled China in the second decade was born in 1760, the same year that George III came to the throne in England. Yang Yan was actually the 15th son of the Qianlong Emperor, and he had two younger brothers. The family relations of the Chinese royal family are fabulously complicated. Yang Yan's father had three empresses, 16 consorts of various ranks, and six concubines. The Qianlong Emperor liked to have a lot of sex, 
as you can plainly tell. Of young Anne's 16 brothers, 8 died before he was born, 4 died while he was still young, and the living ones were passed over, for what reason I'm not entirely sure. He was called Prince Gia, and was designated his father's heir when he was 13, in 1773. As I mentioned earlier, although Yang Yan became the Jiajing Emperor when his father abdicated in February 1796, he still wasn't ruling in his own right. The Qianlong Emperor remained behind the scenes, still wielding power with his son as a sort of puppet emperor. This continued for another three years. Yang Yan finally got to run the show himself when his dear old dad croaked in the winter of 1799, age 87. Yang Yan was nearly 40. Yong Yan's transition to power was a rocky one. You see, dear old dad, the Qianlong Emperor, had left him a very big and very expensive problem. The Qianlong Emperor's favorite and most trusted official was a fellow named Hen Shen. Exactly how and why he got to be the Emperor's favorite is shrouded in myth. There's a story that he resembled a beloved concubine who committed suicide after an accidental slight against the Emperor at court. The legend is that Hong Li thought Hen Shen was the reincarnation of this dead concubine, and thus granted him extraordinary privileges. Who knows if that's true? But what is undoubtedly true is that Hen Shen was incredibly corrupt. I mean, the scale of his thievery and his brazenness is so audacious that you almost can't believe it. Certainly Hen Shen was skimming money from the imperial treasury, which he was in charge of. In addition to flagrant extortion and the old favorite of pocket-lighting bureaucrats, the overfunded government contract, Hen Shen was able to appoint his lackeys and toadies to various government posts, most of which were devoted to channeling tax revenue directly into Hen Shen's accounts. The Qianlong Emperor, puzzled at why so little tax revenue was reaching the coffers, kept raising taxes over and over again, much to Hen Shen's delight. Clearly, the old man was blind to the scale of Hen Shen's crimes. But Yang Yan, he understood what was going on, and before his father was barely cold, he struck. On February 12, 1799, just five days after the death of the Qianlong Emperor, Yang Yan had Hen Shen arrested and charged with a long list of crimes against the state. When they raided Hen Shen's house, one of his many houses, the scope of his greed became clear. This guy just didn't know when to stop. 1,200 pieces of jade, 600 pounds of ginseng, over 14,000 bolts of silk, and 24 solid gold beds. That's the tip of the iceberg. Billions of dollars worth of loot. Yang Yan's officials estimated that Han Shen had stolen an amount equivalent to the income of the entire Qing state for 15 years. Yang Yan sentenced Han Shen to an excruciating execution the proverbial death by a thousand cuts, which is not just a saying, but was really a thing in Qing China. The emperor then kindly commuted the sentence, if Hen Shen would agree to hang himself. The rope he did it with was inlaid with gold, because, of course. Still, even after Hen Shen was dead, his influence lived on. There was a substantial faction of corrupt officials who had been in league with Hen Shen. The Jiajing emperor wasn't so quick to replace them. In Imperial China, it was especially hard to replace bureaucrats, who were sort of a social class unto themselves. It was through a very extensive system of bureaucratic offices, most of them filled by Han Chinese, that a tiny minority of Manchus was able to administer 300 million people of China. Yang Yan had a lot of other headaches, too. 
One of them was called the White Lotus Society. That name conjures up images of some kind of cabal who hang around in robes and masks and have a secret handshake or something, like the henchmen of villains in a James Bond film, or maybe the Orgy Society from Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. In reality, the leadership and even membership of this group was pretty nebulous. They blended into the local population, which made it pretty hard for Qing soldiers to hunt them down. Basically, they were religious in origin, believing that a future descendant of the Buddha would come to earth and usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. The Qing didn't like the White Lotus folks because they advocated a return to the Ming Dynasty, which was, after all, Han Chinese. They were also tax protesters. Under the Qianlong Emperor, the government cracked down on the White Lotus Society, and there was a major revolt in the 1790s, which kept smoldering faintly on for the next 10 years or so. But then, during the second decade, in 1813, the White Lotus problem flared up again in a new guise. This time, it might have toppled the dynasty. In another example of the many connections between far-flung events in the second decade, you might be intrigued to know that the Eight Trigrams Uprising, that's what this particular revolt was called, had been inspired in 1811 when Lin Jing, a member of an offshoot of the White Lotus sect, observed the great comet hanging in the sky that year. This comet, visible with the naked eye all over the world, was remembered and recorded by many observers in the second decade. In Europe, it was thought to be a harbinger of war, and those who believed it thought Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812 fulfilled the prophecy. In China, the Jiajing Emperor proclaimed that the Great Comet was a symbol of heaven's blessing of his government, that the dynasty still had the mandate of heaven. Lin Jing and his friends came to exactly the opposite conclusion. They interpreted the comet as a sign from the gods that it was time to rise up, kick the Manchus out of the Forbidden City, and send them back home. Since the White Lotus Society already believed in the restoration of the Ming Dynasty, this wasn't too far a jump. Throughout 1812 and the first part of 1813, the leaders of the Eight Trigrams sect met and conferred in secret, trying to lay the groundwork for their coup. Somebody from the group made contact with the eunuchs of the Forbidden City. The eunuchs were the secret backbone of the Chinese court. If you've seen the Bernardo Bertolucci film The Last Emperor, which takes place a century later, you've seen the society of eunuchs portrayed. These were, as their name suggests, men who, shall we say, lacked some key parts of their anatomy. For hundreds of years, it was a tradition for eunuchs to serve the emperor and his family in the Forbidden City. It was also a form of social mobility. Poor families from the provinces would have their sons deliberately castrated and then send them to Beijing in the hopes they would gain employment in the emperor's court. Many did. But many of the eunuchs were also skillful plotters and intriguers, as the Eight Trigrams incident shows. In the summer of 1813, the leaders of the Eight Trigrams fixed the date of September 15th as the time for their attack. They had a stockpile of weapons, and the plan was to take over the Forbidden City while the Jiajing Emperor was at his summer palace 50 miles away. Coordinated uprisings would also begin in several key towns in various provinces. The eunuchs who'd thrown their lot in with the rebels opened the gates to the city on that day. The rebels wore white cloths tied around their heads and waists. About 80, out of a force of 250, made it inside the Forbidden City, and fierce fighting broke out between the Eight Trigrams rebels and the Qing guards. Yongyan's son, Prince Mianing, the future Daoguang Emperor, 
then in his early 30s, grabbed a musket he secretly owned. They were supposedly forbidden in the Forbidden City, and he joined the fighting personally, an event that won him much respect. The rebels, though, had lost the element of surprise. As they began to fall back, the guards gained on them. Ultimately, the eight Trigrams rebels fled the Forbidden City. 31 of the rebels were killed, 44 captured alive, most of them tortured afterwards. About 100 people inside the Forbidden City were dead. The emperor himself was unharmed. For months, Qing bannermen, that's what the Manchu soldiers were called, scoured the countryside hunting down the White Lotus rebels. But the thing about rebellions in China in the 19th century is that it was like playing whack-a-mole. Every time you hammered one down, another would pop up somewhere else. Indeed, the seeds of the Great Rebellions that would rake China in the later 19th century were definitely growing out of the ground the White Lotus Society had cultivated. Another rebel group, called the Yihe Tuan, had origins related to the old White Lotus Society. The Yihe Tuan were more commonly known, and later known, as the Boxers. Their rebellion in the final years of the 19th century would ultimately involve the famous siege of the foreign legations in Beijing in the summer of 1900. That event is, in fact, known, at least by Westerners, as the Boxer Rebellion. Another seed that would ultimately spell misfortune for China in later years was growing in the second decade, and that's one I've already mentioned, opium. The Jiajing Emperor, like his father before him, was aware of the opium problem and resisted British attempts to introduce it into the country. Chinese port officials were hostile toward the importation of opium, and since 1796, the British East India Company had been trying to circumvent them by importing opium into China through middlemen in Macau, then a Portuguese colony. During the second decade, about 4,000 chests of opium moved into China per year. A chest is about 140 pounds. Still, that's not insignificant, and at the end of the decade, in 1819, the drug trade began to boom. Prices had declined, and India was definitely open for business as the chief supplier of recreational pharmaceuticals to the Middle Kingdom. Just to give you a sense of how big a trade opium was, at the beginning of the second decade, China's trade surplus with the West, that problem that the Brits had tried to solve by sending Lord McCartney, was about $26 million. By contrast, in a six-year period between 1828 and 1836, China suddenly had a trade deficit of $38 million. That's a big turnaround. What made the difference? Opium. But that was still to come. The old Canton system, proclaimed by the Qianlong Emperor in the 18th century, was still in effect in the second decade. The Jiajing Emperor wouldn't change it. The British, who hadn't done so well with that McCartney thing, decided they'd try again. In 1816, they dispatched another diplomatic mission to try to establish an embassy in Beijing, as a first step toward reducing those trade barriers that were such a bee in Britain's bonnet. The 1816 mission to China was led by William Pitt Amherst, an earl, another one of those dependable British noblemen in the Foreign Service. A few veterans of the 1793 McCartney mission were in tow. One of the diplomats, Henry Ellis, later published the Journal of the Mission, full of minutiae and observations about the mysterious land of China that readers back home in England would doubtless find fascinating. This episode opened with a quote from Ellis's book. Like the McCartney crew before him, the Amherst mission was treated lavishly by their Chinese hosts, at least up to a point. After a long sea voyage, they took a leisurely trip from Tianjin, the main port, 
that services the capital toward Beijing proper. Along the way, there were many preliminary meetings with Qing officials, mandarins, the British called them, and several sumptuous banquets. Ellis described one. Quote, the custard and the preserved fruits with which the dinner commenced were very palatable. I cannot say that I much liked the bird's nest soup. It was too gelatinous and insipid for my taste. Nor did the various additions of shrimps, eggs, etc. improve the compound. The shark fins were not more agreeable. The Chinese eat as well as drink to each other, and a mandarin who stood behind us regulated the times of commencement, both in the dishes and cups of wine. The wine was heated and had not an unpleasant flavor. It is not unlike sherry. End quote. For all the whining and dining, shark fin soup and shrimp, the Amherst mission was pretty much a failure. In 1793, McCartney had at least gotten to meet the emperor personally. In 1816, Amherst didn't get that far. The issue? The exact same one on which the McCartney mission had almost failed, whether the ambassador would agree to kowtow to the emperor. Amherst and company tried the same deal that McCartney had tried to make with the Qianlong emperor. He, Amherst, would do the kowtow if an official of the Qing court, roughly equal to Amherst's rank, would agree to kowtow in front of a portrait of King George III. This had been proposed during the McCartney mission and ultimately rejected. They eventually got past it with the whole down-on-one-knee compromise. But this time, no dice. In the Chinese worldview, no living man, not even the mad and seldom-seen king of Great Britain, was as exalted as the emperor of China. Just like McCartney years before, the Chinese saw the British mission as one of tribute from a lesser power not a negotiation among countries of equal status. On this point, Amherst wouldn't budge. He wasn't allowed to enter Beijing at all. He went back to England and eventually became Governor General of India. The failure of the two missions, McCartney's in 1793 and Amherst's during the second decade, convinced officials in the British government and the East India Company that negotiations with the Chinese were pretty pointless. When the opium boom began in 1819, the Brits were satisfied enough. After all, they were making money. But 20 years later, in 1839, the Qing government, now led by the Daoguang Emperor, Yang and Sun, tried to ban opium in China once and for all. The result was the Opium Wars, one of the most brazen and cruel acts of Western imperialism of the 19th century. The British retaliation against China, Military force used to defend a Western power's ability to deal illegal drugs in a foreign country ultimately led to the system of unequal treaties and the carving up of China by Western powers, which would fatally weaken the Qing dynasty and lead to its eventual overthrow in 1911. That very long story is beyond the scope of this episode. At the end of the second decade, on September 2, 1820, Yang Yan, the Jiajing Emperor, died at his summer palace at Jehal. He was 59 years old. The cause of his death is unclear. Some say he was struck by lightning. That would have been quite a way to go for a divine Chinese emperor, but the reality is probably something more mundane, a stroke maybe, or a heart attack. Yang Yan was known to be quite fat. His son, Prince Mianing, assumed power as the Daoguang Emperor. He ruled until his death in 1850. It's clear, given the stability and the terror, if you consider what happened to the Zungars, of the reign of the Qianlong Emperor, widely considered to be the zenith of the Qing dynasty, and the quick decline into which China sank in the succeeding decades, that the real pivot point of the dynasty occurred during the reign 
of the Jiajing Emperor, and perhaps during the second decade. China's final descent into the chaos of its revolution would take another century, but you can clearly see that the seeds were there. Everything that would undo the Qing dynasty was already underway, in some small way at least, by the end of the second decade. If you liked this podcast, please tell a friend. Talk about it on social media. If you're part of a Facebook group, there are many historical Facebook groups, give me a mention. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs like you find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The World in 1800 by Olivier Bernier, published by Wiley of New York, 2000, The Cambridge History of China, edited by John K. Fairbank, Cambridge University Press, 1978, and Proceedings of the Late Embassy to China by Henry Ellis, published by John Murray of London, 1817. Music Credits The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. The special theme at the beginning of this episode called Shen Yang, also by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.